episode 250 of the Pilot the Pilot podcast takes off now. Fly with Garmin Avionics, then grab your mobile device and make the Garmin Pilot app your cockpit companion. Get advanced functions you'll use before, during, and after every flight, including updating your aircraft's databases and logging engine data, plan, file, fly, log with Garmin Pilot. The Pilot to Pilot podcast is brought to you by The Finer Points. They have an amazing ground school app for the knowledge you need to fly. To learn more, visit learnthefinerpoints.com. This holiday season, purchase a Bose ProFlight Series 2 aviation headset and get a SoundLink micro Bluetooth speaker for free. The headset features active noise cancellation, tap control, and side swappable mic for ease, comfort, and reliability. It's the lightest, most compact aviation headset from Bose yet. Take advantage of this special offer between November 20th and December 31st. Order yours at bose.com aviation. Aviation, what is going on? And welcome back to the Pilot the Pilot podcast. My name is Justin Seams and I am your host. Today's episode is with Jim Higgins and it's another state of the industry. It's highly requested. Uh, so Jim has come back and he is letting us know what his thoughts are on the industry and what is going on currently. Aviation, I hope you're enjoying these episodes. It's a lot of fun to have the state of the industry. Uh, we're, we're hoping at the beginning of next year to make it its own podcast. Uh, so life can slow down a little bit. The kitchen is almost done. I've talked about it a million times, <laughs> but it's almost done. We are on the final stretch. So have a nice reveal on Instagram. So follow us at Pilot the Pilot and Pilot's Coffee because the steep packets are coming soon. And also check out First Form. Peppermint is back. It's amazing. Put it in your coffee. It is just like the best peppermint mocha you've ever had in your life. So go ahead and check that out in the link below. But even without any further ado, Here's a State of the Industry episode with Jim Higgins. Hello and welcome back to the State of the Aviation Industry podcast. Good to uh, have you all with me again. I'm Jim Higgins and uh, this is the second podcast and I want to take a quick moment and thank everyone for taking the time to give me some feedback I appreciate that. Most of it was positive. In fact, I have to say all of it was positive and uh, had some good ideas for uh, episodes in the future. So please feel free to keep uh, funneling that to me. Um, and I'll give you some uh, contact information uh, at the end uh, for those of you that want to reach out or have any, any comments about it. Uh, so let's just uh, hop right into what's going on in the industry. There's always something going on. And we're always going to take a look at it from the airline side, at least initially. And I promised in the last podcast that we would take a deeper dive into this pilot supply issue. As you know, it's a very big issue. Uh, many uh, different constituencies, whether it's an airline company, a labor group, uh, there's different industry groups. They all have opinions. Many of those opinions are making their way into mainstream media. Uh, some people say there's a huge pilot supply issue, not enough pilots. Uh, some people say that that's not true. If we just simply increase the quality of life pay and other types of uh, work rules, that we can attract a, as many pilots as we need to the industry. So let's sort through this uh, really quick. And let me give you a little bit of a background on what I know about this. Uh, those of you that uh, 
uh, listened to the first podcast, you know my background has always been that in aviation. Currently uh, a professor at the University of North Dakota, largest aviation uh, collegiate training program in the United States. And uh, I've been doing this for just over 20 years, and I've been very happy here. Of course, before that, I spent a lot of time in the airlines, including some stints uh, in labor unions, which we'll we'll talk about uh, as we go forward here. But in 2009, when I was still a fairly junior faculty member here at UND, <clears throat> my boss and mentor, uh, Kent Lovelace, who was at the time a the chair of the aviation department here at UND, well-known figure in the industry, uh, highly respected individual, came and said, hey, the military, the National Defense Transportation Association, is asking for a pilot supply forecast. They literally want to know how many pilots are going to be showing up in the future. Can we do anything about that? And I said, well, let me take a quick look at this. I've never actually made a very deep dive um, into this particular issue. I didn't know anything more than a, you know, a typical pilot and pundit, I guess, in the industry would know. We all have our opinions on things. So I, I took a I took a pretty deep dive. And we developed a model. And what the model predicted, it's really an interesting model. I don't want to get overly academic, but uh, it might be interesting to to talk about a little bit. The model predicted both um a uh a good variable and a bad variable that predicts new pilots that want to enter into the professional piloting community. Uh, the first variable is cost. So as the cost of initial flight training increases, especially when it's adjusted for inflation, the number of people that enter the profession or enter the uh, pipeline to become a commercial ATP and ultimately an airline pilot or professional pilot decreases. And of course, there's some common sense there, but we quantified all of that and said, this is the number of pilots we expect less of baseline from a normal year if there's any kind of an increase, uh, especially when adjusted for inflation. The other variable was a spurring activity variable. And every time a pilot was hired at a major airline, and we listed the major airlines in the report, but think legacy carriers and some of the bigger carriers out there. Uh, it actually spurred additional pilots entering the industry. And we quantified the entire model. We put our entire methodology out there. Uh, later on in 2013, we joined forces with uh, Delta Airlines, United Airlines, a number of regionals at the time, the ATA, now known as A4A, uh, and worked really hard at getting data, and we put together a really good forecast. That forecast in 2013, by the way, which went on to be published in peer-reviewed journals, uh, in retrospect, over the five years following from 2013 to 2018, it was 96% accurate. Um, and some people hear that and they're like, oh yeah, right, a forecast that's 96% accurate. It really was. Uh, and so we've been studying this for quite some time. And... Um, you know, I think we have a pretty good pulse on, on what's going on. But going back to 2009, when we made that first forecast, Kent Lovelace and I, we were in a room with literally with four-star generals, high-ranking military people, also some high-ranking, uh, at the time, executives in the industry, including a younger uh, Steve Dixon. That name might be familiar. He went on to become the FA administrator. At the time, he was the VP of flight ops at Delta, but he was in the room listening to these 
two guys from North Dakota coming in in 2009 saying, hey, there might be issues down the road with the pilot supply. Now, you have to back up to 2009. We were in the middle of what was called a bathtub recession. That's an economic term that I learned where you go flatline for quite some time. I guess recessions have two ways to recover. One is a V-shaped on a chart where you hit the low point, then you immediately uh, start uh, moving back into the boom period. But in this case, it was a bathtub recession, which means we hit the low point and then it's just flatline for an extended period, period of time at that low point. For those of you that remember, it was a tough time. There were a lot of furloughed pilots. Uh, there was a housing crisis that caused a lot of these issues. And it was just a very difficult time. The airline still hadn't completely figured out ancillary revenue. So they had a lot of difficulty in figuring out how to make ends meet. And so when we started saying, hey, there's going to be a problem in the future, we were immediately dismissed by most people in the room because, one, they'd heard this many times before. There are some um, pundits out there <laughs> that have said over the years, hey, this big pilot supply uh, issue, there's going to be a big pilot shortage just right around the corner here. And everyone would laugh because it would never come to fruition. But this was the first time we actually put some academic rigor. We took a look at the numbers retiring, the number of people coming in, the economic situation. And, you know, history has definitely proven us right. But at the time, nobody believed us, and we were pretty much dismissed uh, summarily. Of course, um, we were kind of heading towards some of those fundamentals uh, as we recovered after the, um, it's now called the Great Recession, but we recovered from the Great Recession. And um, now uh, the issue is, the issue was, uh, okay, well, we might be running out of pilots, uh, not just as, as was predicted and as others have said. And so if you recall, uh, the age 60 rule became the age 65 rule. That's the, that's the age that all pilots must retire by uh, in a 121 operation at, a, at, a, at an airline. And in the United States, it was raised from 60 to 65. We can certainly talk about that, uh, but that did delay the impact of the pilot supply. Just as a quick aside, I, I do get this question from time to time, why was the retirement age raised to age 65? Uh, well, uh, the truth is it was a pretty big economic raise. ALPA, the Airline Pilots Association, and many other labor unions had for years opposed raising from age 60 to, to 65. Um, the reason why, uh, if you ask them, was because of safety. Uh, there were some safety issues, and, and I've been involved in a few pilot studies that looked at cognitive decline versus expertise and experience. And um, certainly there are people as they get older that do have a cognitive decline, uh, and, and we can certainly talk about the, the how old should you be. Uh, we could have that discussion at some point in the future. But the main reason why it was changed from 60 to 65, was, and this is just my opinion now, uh, but if you recall, that was when a lot of retirements were going away, a lot of pensions. There are two different types in general, two different types of retirements out there. There's a defined benefit and a defined contribution. The defined benefits are like the pensions and the defined contributions would be like what you know is maybe a 401k. And the difference is with a 401k, you know, money is given to you from the employer to invest and they'll often match or, or whatever. But you, as the employee, you take all the risk, right? So if you're, if the economy has a downturn and your stock prices get lower that you're invested in, then your retirement goes lower. And we're seeing a little bit of that, of course, lately, unfortunately. 
In a defined benefit plan, the employer takes all the risk. They guarantee a fixed amount, a fixed payment, a fixed salary after you retire for life. So as you can imagine, the defined benefits or the pension programs are much more expensive. In fact, um, because of ERISA, which is the, uh, uh, it's a retirement act um, that was put into, um, uh, put into fruition by Congress, it's really hard to create one of these now because companies have to keep them pretty well funded. Well, um, you know, uh, after the Great Recession, as airlines were going into bankruptcy, many of them were going to bankruptcy court asking to get rid of these uh, these uh, pension programs because of how much they cost the companies. And um, it was a really interesting time because you had the Bankruptcy Act and then you had the Federal Retirement Acts or ERISA, uh, which is, the, I, th- I think it stands for the Employee Retirement Insurance uh, something act. I'm sorry, it escapes me right now. But it had laws as well. And then you also had the um, new laws that said companies couldn't use bankruptcy to shed their obligations to their employees. That came about a courtesy of a person uh, named Frank Lorenzo <laughs> in the mid-80s. We'll talk about him at some point in the future as well. Uh, but uh, because of that, there was some uh, strengthening of the laws there. So this all came into uh, fruition. And then the question became, well, what's going to win? You know, can you can you use bankruptcy to get rid of these um, pension programs? And the long and short of it, these pension programs went away at many carriers. So at age 60, which was the mandatory retirement age, I mean, imagine for a second if you're 58 years old at an airline and all of a sudden your guaranteed pension and your retirement went away. And so you're going to go from probably the top of your career making a top wage and in a year or two, you're going to go to nothing. Because, by the way, Social Security at that point in time wasn't going to kick in until 65. So you were literally going to go from a feast to famine for about five years. So in my opinion, the reason why the retirement age was raised from age 60 to 65 and the reason why it started to become supported by the labor unions was simply to fill the gap between where these pensions would go away and then there was like not a lot of income coming in and when Social Security would come in. You know, the lesson to younger people starting out in the industry, and this is something that I teach in my classes at the University of North Dakota, when I get a chance to, I simply say to them, you know, no matter what your contract says, no matter what you think is coming your way when you retire, whether it's Social Security, whether it's a pension, whatever the case may be, take responsibility for your own retirement. uh, And don't count on anybody else because there's so many people that have uh, been let down. And so that's why you want to save on your own, but that's a little side. So that's the reason why age 65 got changed, in my opinion. And um, that, of course, uh, led to, I guess, somewhat of a stalling of these fundamentals. It basically delayed for a few years, three to five years at least, um, the shortages that we had forecast. Now. you add to that, uh, you know, uh, several years later, um, the effects of the public law that was passed after the Colgan accident, which will be another topic we talk about. But that was the 2008 accident out in Buffalo where um, the aircraft was stalled into the ground and, and you know, the, everyone died. It caused a lot of changes. But one of the changes that it caused was it, it required an ATP for anyone in the left seat or right seat. For any of those folks uh, to 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 uh, work at an airline, 
which in essence took the 250-hour-ish minimum commercial certificate person that you could hire. And now all of a sudden, those, those folks needed to have at least 1,000 hours under restricted ATP, but perhaps as much as 1,500 hours. So it would add a couple, it would add at least a year to a year and a half, maybe even longer before a person could, could get that time. So it caused a, it caused a pretty big gap um, in uh, you know, the ability to fill seats. So then uh, the pandemic hit. And you know everyone was uh, everyone's familiar with the pandemic. We certainly don't have to to uh, beat on that anymore. However, if you think about it, uh, because the airlines were preparing for, quite frankly, they were facing existential issues. There were a lot of people that took early retirements. A lot of people that were bought out in severance packages, with the idea being that the company was going to put in some long term cost cutting measures to weather the pandemic storm. Uh, now, whether you think it was fast or uh, slow, the the recovery occurred a lot more quickly, uh, and passengers started coming back a lot more quickly. The business passengers are still trickling in, but we're definitely seeing uh, passenger loads like we saw pre-pandemic. We're we're really really close, and I would say, uh, you know, uh, actually very close. In some cases, we've even had a few days where we've exceeded. And so now, all of a sudden, these companies that uh, had gotten rid of, you know, thousands of pilots in some cases. Now they have to hire. And oh yeah, there's a lot of people re- retiring. And one other factor I haven't really talked about is even though the pilot age was increased to age 65, there are a number of pilots and the percentages are actually a closely guarded secret. But I can tell you, having examined a lot of airline data across a lot of airlines, you're looking at somewhere between 60 and 75% of pilots that actually make it to age 65. Could be because they medical out. It could be because of just a choice. Um, it could be a number of reasons why, but uh, uh, not everyone makes it to age 65. So then you have all these retirements piling up, this loss of talent that, that left early during the pandemic. And then you have these announced growth plans. I mean, some of these legacy carriers, you know, United, for instance, with the United Next initiative, but also you're looking at some of the um, freight folks as well. Um, these massive expansion pan- plans and this massive amount of hiring going on. You look at some of the low cost, the ULCCs, um, ULCCs, you look at some of them and they've got massive hiring plans as well. Some of them are going to double in size, at least on paper, in the next four to five years. So, so you've got all this hiring going on. So then the question becomes, are there going to be enough people to meet that demand? And it's a double, it's a double-edged question because here's the truth of the matter. Alpa says, the, and most unions say, there's no pilot shortage, there's a pilot pay shortage or a pilot quality of life shortage. And if you make an entry-level job affordable and of high enough quality, you'll have plenty of people that come to the industry and, and take those jobs. And, and by the way, that is economically uh, probably... Uh, as close to a certain fact as you can get. I mean, imagine a ludicrous example for a second. If I offered somebody a million dollars to come and fly uh, at my airline just to be an FO in the right seat of a, of a regional jet or whatever, of course there's going to be people that are lining up um, to, to do that. And so that is true. There definitely is it's very elastic and there definitely is a point on the curve that you can attract enough people. And in fact, we're seeing that. 
Did you know that at some of the regionals out there, Mesa, for instance, with their new signed contract and some others, Endeavor's another one, that first-year pilots at those air carriers are making more, in some cases, than first-year pilots at the legacy carriers. Uh, Now, a lot of that's temporary, potentially, depending on what happens to the economy in the future. They're not necessarily long-standing structural contractual provisions, but that is an interesting point. And so the question is now that this is happening, are enough pilots showing up? Um, the answer is just barely. Right now, there are just enough people uh, showing up at many of the higher quality regionals that they're able to still carry out uh, their missions. However, there is a tremendous amount of open time. And for those that don't know what that means, that's basically uh, o- uh, overtime for pilots, people that pick up extra shifts, extra flights, extra sequences. There's a tremendous amount of that available. And uh, the industry is greatly relying on pilots to do that. And they're incentivizing them to do that. Uh, but we have not even seen the crux of the retirements yet. That's going to start happening from 24, 25, and 2026, you're going to really start seeing some retirements. And that's also when a lot of airlines have announced a big increase in growth. So what I'm trying to say is, is right now, perhaps the head is just above the water in this case. But um, what I think we're going to see, and based on all the forecasting I've done in the past, we still have some fundamental structural issues where there simply is not going to be enough pilots ready on time to hit the supply. So what's going to end up happening in the industry? Well, in my opinion and in uh, others' opinions that have studied this for a very long time, there's going to be this concept kind of called regionalization, not to be confused with regional airlines, but regionalization. Studies have been done that have shown that people, especially in rural areas where there's not a lot of air service, but even in bigger cities, people are willing to drive for up to an hour to get to an airport to take a trip. In other words, would people like to have a 10-minute trip to the airport and get on a plane? Certainly. But people are willing to drive an hour. So what you might see, like where I live in Grand Forks, North Dakota, uh, we have service from uh, Delta and Allegiant right now. But, you know, at some point in the future, if there's not enough pilots uh, out there, especially at the regional level, what you might see happen is you might see them close the smaller uh, cities like Grand Forks. We have about 50,000 people here. And people like me may have to drive to Fargo, North Dakota. In other words, it's in our region. It's regionalization. We're going to drive that hour to get on the the plane down there. So that's definitely a strong possibility that we might start seeing that. And, um, you know, I'll let you all decide if that's a good thing or a bad thing. Uh, it's, It's a thing for sure, though, but I think that's very possible. You are also going to see, in my opinion, with um, the cost of providing regional feed, especially the labor costs, uh, even though the pay rates are kind of high, you still don't see the back end or what we call the roll-ups, which is the retirement and some of the other work rules and other benefits. So it is still cheaper from a labor perspective to fly regional feed, but that gap is rapidly closing. And what that means is it's very possible you'll start seeing uh, the larger carriers down gauge a little bit. And I think you're already seeing that a little bit with the um, A220 and some of the smaller um, some of the smaller uh, jets out there. You're starting to see some of that. 
uh, things that would have maybe traditionally been more in the regional realm. You're starting to see the reach down. And I think you're going to maybe see more of that. So those are some of the two possibilities that, that might come out from this. But we'll take a deeper dive uh, into this in the future. Let's take a break from today's episode to hear from our sponsor, RAA. Okay, time out for a quick PSA. It's open enrollment season again. That once a year window to sign up for changes in your airline benefits, including medical coverage, disability, 401k, and others. Now, this is important because these are pivotal decisions that can significantly impact you and your family's financial future. So this isn't the time to wing it. So do what I do and schedule a free benefits optimization review from our partners at RAA. An airline specialized advisor will go over your plan and help tailor your election so you'll know you're making the best possible decisions for your personal needs and goals and maximizing your airline's benefits to the fullest. But your open enrollment period will fly by. So go to raa.com slash pilot to pilot, that's pilot to pilot, to schedule your complimentary benefits review today. While you're there, check out their open enrollment resource center where you'll find videos, articles, and more tools to help guide you through this crucial decision period. Don't miss out. Go to raa.com slash pilot to pilot, that's pilot to pilot. And now back to today's episode. One person that I am definitely going to interview at some point in the next several podcasts, if I can convince him, is my colleague and mentor, Kent Lovelace, who was with me in the beginning when we started studying this problem. And he is responsible for industry relations at the University of North Dakota, but he really has his finger on the pulse of the industry. He talks to all the airlines uh, probably on a monthly basis, if not a weekly basis, and he knows uh, what's going on out there. So we'll definitely bring him in for a little more uh, specificity in the current situation. And uh, we can we can talk about it from here. So um, that's my answer. Uh, right now, the, our head is staying above the water. The regional airlines are doing what they need to do to bring in pilots per Alpa's point that if you pay well and you have uh, good benefits, uh, people will come, right? If you build it, they will come. But I do think there still are structural issues, especially as we get into more massive retirements in the mid-2020s with the growth plans. It could become very, very difficult. So that's that. There is one other little point I want to talk about that's somewhat related, but I think very, very interesting. It was a little, it was not very well talked about in the press, but to me, especially coming from a labor union background, I found this fascinating. Uh, about a couple weeks back, uh, both the Delta MEC and the Endeavor MEC. Now, let me just talk about that for a second. The MEC stands for Master Executive Council. And every airline that is covered by ALPA, that's a member of ALPA, the Airline Pilots Association, they're going to have their own MEC. And that's going to be a group of pilots that's responsible for that particular airline. And um, both the Delta MEC and the Endeavor MEC, and Endeavor is a wholly owned uh, regional carrier of Delta, they both signed a joint resolution saying that they desire for all the Endeavor pilots and all the Endeavor aircraft to be absorbed into the mainline. Now think about that for a second. Um, first, this likely won't happen anytime soon. And we'll talk about why. But the reason why this is a significant undertaking is because this is the first time I've ever seen two labor groups come together on this very issue in such a public way. For a little bit of background, if you recall from the first podcast, I was the MEC chairman at American Eagle Airlines 
just after 9-11, and uh, that's now known as Envoy Airlines. They've changed their name. We had about 2,900 pilots on the list at the time. And our uh, we were a, a feeder, a regional airline, for American Airlines. And of course, American Airlines is represented by the APA, the Allied Pilots Association. And we were in close talks with the APA, with Alpa's blessing back then. We were in close talks with them, and we talked regularly about merging the seniority lists, about doing something similar uh, that you saw here between Delta and, and Endeavor. And there just never was enough political will uh, on the mainline partners um, uh, part to push this through. And this other efforts were made throughout the industry, uh, but it never happened until just recently. And, and so let's just talk philosophically for a second why this is so hard for two labor groups to come together and decide on it. Um, first, the Airline Pilots Association, which is the largest union that represents all pilots, it's a behemoth, right? It's large. But the truth is, the word A in ALPA stands for association. So really, ALPA is a group of localized uh, committees called LECs uh, that represent at the local level the pilots and their issue. And then the LECs come together at each carrier and they form an, an MEC, a Master Executive Council. And basically they look out for their interests at their carrier and they use the resources from ALPA because ALPA has amazing resources. They have lawyers and economists and safety folks and you know all kinds of things, medical. Um, and they'll use those resources. But sometimes those MECs have opposing viewpoints. Case in point is a regional affiliate carrier and a mainline carrier. The mainline carrier is always going to be concerned with scope. And scope is a very important issue. Scope basically deals with trying to get all of the flying done by that company or on behalf of that company to be done by the pilots that are covered by that contract. They have to be on the, the seniority list. But over the years, uh, for routes that had smaller aircraft, most uh, legacy carriers have been able to farm out or outsource that flying to regional affiliates. And so this caused a lot of, uh, in some cases, it's a striking issue for the mainline affiliate. In some cases, it's definitely a, a point of contention at the negotiating table. But on the other side of that, the regional affiliate that also has an MEC, they're trying to increase their lot in life as well and represent their pilots. And they're trying to get better routes, bigger aircraft, more pay as well. And there, we should stop for a second and say, there's a long viewpoint and there's a shorter viewpoint. So um, there are folks that work for regional airlines that uh, are very happy there and want to retire there. And they're doing very well for themselves, making uh, you know great money. They have a, a, you know an unbelievably great quality of life that works for them and their, their personal situations, be it family or whatnot. And so they would also like to fly perhaps bigger equipment at times. They'd like to get better pay and better work rules. So the union has a responsibility there to, the MEC has a responsibility there to represent them. So as you can see, the regional affiliate is often trying to increase the scope, right? Trying to get bigger, faster equipment. And the mainline MEC is trying to protect that, keep that away. And that's an overly simplified viewpoint. So when these two MECs came together and said, well, one solution is, is just to absorb the smaller group into the larger group, that absolutely solves that problem. In fact, and I'm not saying this to be offensive, but um, 
There's a concept known as B scale, and that's where, you know, perhaps newer pilots or whatever, they would get on a much lower pay rate until they get to some point in seniority, then they can get a higher pay. And it was something that's been fought for years and finally was done away with at the labor unions. But you could make an argument that a lot of regional affiliates uh, are on that B scale right now. And, you know, it's to the company in some cases, they can make quite a bit of money on that lower labor rate uh, by farming out some of that work. So it's a constant tension. So it was um, very interesting to see that develop. And, and even though you don't really hear much about it and not much came of it, that truly is kind of a monumental, at least from a labor perspective, a monumental undertaking because you had two groups that um, uh, certainly professionally involved with each other, as certainly share a lot of common goals, would generally be opposed on the scoping issue. They came together and said, here's one way to solve it. And so from that standpoint, I've got to kind of take my hat off and salute both those MECs because that's quite a solution to this. Now, a combined seniority list that includes the regional affiliate, it does present some challenges. So it's not just a simple thing of just saying, okay, let's absorb the smaller airline and just put them all on the seniority list. <clears throat> I mean, there's lots of issues with that. Seniority integration, which we talked about last time, not the least of it. Um, certainly, recruiting would probably get really good on the civilian side because if you um, were graduating from college or from flight school somewhere and you were looking for a job at a regional airline and all of a sudden you go to a place like, um, and well, in this case, it would be Delta and you can get a job flying your RJ or some kind of your normally regional entry level aircraft, you get a job doing that. You've got your career mapped out. You've got your next 30 years, if you're young enough, 35 years, all taken care of for you, um, you know, as long as you don't uh, do anything silly in your career, right? So that part's good. But there are other issues. You know, for instance, uh, we have to think about the military pilots. A lot of pilots that uh, apply for the military have long-term goal of working for a legacy carrier. And so when they leave the military, they may have to decide between an airline that has more of the entry-level uh, aircraft that they'd have to start at, probably on lower pay, versus another carrier that doesn't have that. And of course, they very likely uh, would maybe choose the the other carrier that where they wouldn't have to start on the smaller aircraft. And so there could be some some issues there as well with the military pilots, which which traditionally at some carriers had been as high as seventy percent of the pilot supply now. That number is much closer to 20%, 25%, depending on the air carrier you look at. Um, and then, of course, there's a lot of folks that have flown for both the regionals and maybe like a guard unit. So there's a mixed group in there as well. So these are just these are just some of the things that, that come to fruition. I will say, just so you know, the company, uh, I don't think they publicly responded, but Delta did come out and um, from the management rank said, hey, this is just a resolution between two groups within a labor union. We have no plans to absorb Endeavor into um, Delta. So the question to watch on this going forward is when Delta's in contract talks, when the Delta pilots are in contract talks, is this something that they want to um, expend some leverage on at the table when they go through their, their contract negotiations? The answer may be yes, because this would solve scope perhaps, if you can get everyone on one seniority list, so that could it could there could be enough for the Delta pilots to do that. I would say to management, they would look at this. Well, it's interesting. They they would likely look at this the way they so far have initially looked at it, 
as just too expensive and impractical. And so the question becomes, is it a strikeable issue? Is it an issue that uh, the mainline pilots are willing to walk the line for down the road? We don't really talk about strikes anymore. They don't happen very often in the U.S. and the airline industry. But um, that's that's the question. Is one group willing to really lay it all on the line? And um, I don't know. I mean, it's these are complicated things that we'll have to watch and see how they develop um, in the coming months. Well, uh, that's it for me. I do want to give you an email address if you want to reach out to me. Um, and uh, you're going to laugh at it. It's my original email address from from way long ago. I used to fly the Saab 340, so I use that, of course, because you know that's my imaginative capabilities. But I use here it is. My my email is sf Sierra Foxtrot 340, all one word Sierra Foxtrot 340 sf340 at yahoo.com. That's how old I am. I still use Yahoo. My my students laugh at me. They they laugh at me. I, I said, hey, there's one older. It's called AOL. So some of you know what I'm talking about. Some of you, those of you that have AOL um, uh, emails, my apologies. But uh, great, uh, great conversation. And I look forward to more feedback. Please feel free to reach out uh, with any feedback, comments, questions, any ideas. Um, there are a few things that we're going to talk about in the future. One of the, one, one of the uh, items I want to talk about is that Colgan accident in Buffalo that we alluded to earlier. That accident had a tremendous effect on the industry. And I have some theories about what really happened on that accident that may uh, diverge from um, what we've uh, what we've seen, uh, the official findings. Uh, you know, I'm not a conspiracy person at all. Uh, and there's certainly, uh, it was an excellent investigation that was done there. But I do think that there might be some some issues there to discuss. I'm also looking at, uh, at some point, getting Kent Lovelace in and some other guests that I've mentioned And um, I think we can have some really good discussions. So that's it for now. And thank you for your time. We'll see you next time. Aviation, that's a wrap on today's episode. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. Uh, Like I said, state industry episodes are a lot of fun. They are very informative. And Jim is one of the best in the industry. So it's always great to have him on. Aviation, hope you're having a great day. Check out the link below for the peppermint protein powder. Add it to your coffee and have the best peppermint mocha. There's no need for Starbucks. (laughs) Aviation, hope you're having a great day. As always, happy flying.